So I got probably my favorite compliment from a stranger just a couple days ago. Actually, I think uh, it was yesterday. Time is weird. It was yesterday at a diner. What's time? Time is a flat circle. Bring yeah. it. Tell me. So, you deserved it. it. And it wasn't just me, but I was I was at a diner with Casey, host of, you know, been on this podcast before. I'm she really, edits our TikToks. She does edit our TikToks. Any TikTok that you find very funny with funny text, that was a Casey. That was 100% always Casey. <laughs> always. So we were just having breakfast and, and chatting and thinking nothing of it. And this couple, an older couple, like graying hair, arm in arm, lovely looking couple gets up from the booth and stops at our table. And they're like, excuse me, ladies. And Casey goes, oh, she thinks she, we're going to get in trouble because we were cursing or something. And I'm just sitting there I'm like, what's about to happen? And the woman goes, you two are so joyous and you have just been so lovely this whole time, never change. Always keep that joy. I'm sorry, what? I haven't stopped thinking about it. So what I'm hearing is a beautiful, wonderful, like, I don't know, witch, but like we mean witch, not like yeah. mundane people mean witch, just yes. came out to boop you with a little compliment. That's exactly what it felt like. It was the- You are the main character. <laughs> It felt like a main character moment. And <laughs> the thing is, I had been complaining. And I don't even remember that what. <laughs> I had been complaining about something. So when she came around and was just like, you two are so joyous. I was like, what were you listening to? <laughs> you joyously spilled the tea. Yeah, I think that's what it was. It was, it was just a, a really random but very sweet. She, she didn't have to say that to us. And, to just, and it's been something that stuck with me to remember to keep the joy in things. And to see the joy in the moments. So thank you, hmm. stranger at the diner. Because also, you know, Rowan, I love a diner. I also know the exact diner you were at. Yes. In fact, we were two booths back from the one that you and I sat in. Amazing. I know. I can picture it perfectly. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. I love that you're in a keep the joy alive mood, mm -hmm. but I'm in a murder mood because some people recently messed with a friend that I care a lot about. Uh, so I'm having none of it. Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. Hi, I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support the show, don't forget to take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. It makes such a difference for us. Or consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable. Speaking of which, we have a couple new patrons that we owe a huge thank you to. Yes, we do. So thank you to Mackenzie, Caffeine Spiritualist, good name. Tiffany A, the NBV, and Charles E. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much for joining the fam. Our patrons are the reason we get to be podcasters. So thank yes. you. Thank you so much. And welcome to the Willing and Fable family. I think pretty much everyone on that list is in the Discord already. And we've been chatting with them. So it's exciting to be able to shout you out on the show. So thank you for being part of the Willing and Fable family. Not the least reason being, everybody showed up with the cute pet pics. <gasps> oh my god. You know that's my thing. I love it. And I also appreciated that everyone found it as funny uh, as I did. I shared a video of Malcolm in training class. Uh, and Little he, guy. <laughs> he was so over training class at that point that the video was just him laying on the ground with his head on his paws 
ignoring the instructor completely. He just doesn't care. He's like, Mom, I got this. Yeah, he's a very confident boy, that that son of mine. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can shamelessly dance around your bedroom to your favorite song and treasure that small moment of joy during your day. Very on theme for me this episode. But no matter what, we're happy to have you here. Yeah, you can tell I didn't write that one. No, and I wrote that like a while ago before I got my cool compliment. So shout out to past me. Live, laugh, love over here. (laughs) For a long time, my phone background was just a design Jamie did that said live, laugh, lurk with a bunch of monsters in the corner. And now I think of that every time I hear live, laugh, love. That's a good one. Uh, A friend of mine who knows how obsessed with the morbid I am, sent me a picture of art that was live, laugh, lobotomy. (gasps) That's amazing. It's dark. That's a very specific brand of humor. Yeah, but I like it. So this episode, we are covering deadly drinks. How did that theme happen? (laughs) We had a few different instances of history of different like deadly beverages or drinks or things that could fall into that category. So then we chose it. And then I immediately chose something that is not a beverage. So mine isn't exactly a drink, but since it is classified as a flood and the substance is edible, I decided to count it. It's okay. I also chose something that's like not that deadly. Okay. So I have the deadly (laughs) and you have the drink. There it is. That's how we got to this. Thank you for being here today, everyone. (laughs) All right, so I'll get started. Um, Today, I am covering the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. I know nothing about this. (laughs) I'm so excited. So quick content warning for the death of children. So fans of weird YouTube history videos like me or Puppet History by Shane Madej and Ryan Bergara (laughs) will likely have heard this story before. However, after a very non-scientific poll of my friends and family, I realized that this story is not as ubiquitous as I had thought it was based on my personalized YouTube algorithm. I genuinely thought everyone knew this story. And it turns out that's not true. No, the whole internet will serve you up what you want, but it was not serving me, molasses, flooding. Not yet, anyway, Rowan. So, the Great Molasses Flood, also known as the Boston Molasses Disaster, was a disaster that occurred on January 15th, 1919, in the North End neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts. Hold on, I'm sorry. Molasses disaster is so much better. Oh, yeah. Great Molasses Flood, I think, also was really cool, too. I just want to come up and be like, oh, you're a molasses disaster. I feel like you can walk into a kitchen and describe it as a molasses disaster, but there are rare, rare, rare circumstances where you get to say this was a molasses flood. (laughs) (laughs) So on January 15th, 1919, a storage tank filled with 2.3 million U.S. gallons of molasses, weighing approximately 26 million pounds or 11,793,402 kilograms burst open. What? The resulting wave of molasses rushed through the streets, killing 21 and injuring 150 people. What? We're going to get into it. Yep. So this 50-foot storage tank was located on Commercial Street in Boston's North End. And at the time of this happening, that was a very happening place to be. At the time of this happening, it was happening? At the time of this happening, it was happening. (laughs) (laughs) The 
contents of the tank were the property of United States industrial alcohol, which took regular shipments of molasses from the Caribbean and used them to produce alcohol for liquor and munitions manufacturing. The company had built the tank in 1915 when World War I had increased demand for industrial alcohol, but the construction process was notoriously rushed and haphazard. The tank was known to creak, groan, and even peel in places, especially in the corners. Same. <laughs> Big mood. I also creak, groan, and even peel in places, especially in the corners. That's just how it is. Just a casual little mortality moment between us and the molasses barrel. What is happening? Oh, this isn't even the half of it. Get ready, Rowan. <laughs> So it wasn't unusual for locals to hear the tank groaning throughout the day and night, especially by 1919, which was four years after it was built. At least one USIA employee warned his bosses that the tank was structurally unsound, yet outside of recalking it, the company took little action to address the concerns. But don't worry, they did do one thing, which was take the time to paint the massive tank brown to hide the leaking molasses. <laughs> Capitalism every time. Every time. I love that they're like, no, we can't address the fact that this massive tank could burst open, but we will make it look better. Historian Stephen Puglio stated that the tank leaked from day one and that it what? was very customary for children of the North End to go and collect molasses with pails. Could you imagine? First of all, mm, you should, that that's terrible. Second of all, those kids, rock on with your bad selves. Right? That is like being a kid in 1917 and running over and collecting molasses from the tank. That's pretty cool. The fact that it was built in the middle of World War I, rushed, haphazard, Creaking and leaking from day one, not as cool. No, you can only be rushed haphazard and creaking from day one if you're a human. Yes. <laughs> so January 15th, 1919 was an unusually warm day, especially for Boston winters. The temperature was around 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 4 degrees Celsius, and there were a lot of people out and about that day. This includes eight-year-old Antonio Distasio, his sister Maria, and another boy named Pascal Iantosca, who were gathering firewood for their families. Meanwhile, over at Engine 31 Firehouse, a group of men were eating their lunch while playing a friendly game of cards. And over at his family's home overlooking the tank, barman Martin Clarity was still dozing in his bed, having put in a late-night shift at his saloon, the Pen and Pencil Club. The Pen and Pencil Club? The Pen and Pencil Club! Isn't that an amazing bar name? The Pen and Pencil Club is... But a bar where it's, like, nerdy and bookish, and also there's coffee and tea. Yes! Oh, and I'm... I guess it's a saloon, so hot girls. Yeah, there you go. But hot girls, like, get paid. That's the best way. <laughs> <laughs> but on this day at 12.40 p.m., everything changed. The occasional creaks and groans heard over at the molasses tank suddenly became a loud booming sound, followed by the ground shaking. Before residents had time to register what was happening, the recently refilled molasses tank ripped wide open and unleashed 2.3 million gallons of molasses into the street. The Boston Post later described it as, quote, a rumble, a hiss, some say a boom and a swish, 
and the wave of molasses swept out. End quote. That writer needed an editor. <laughs> I think that writer wanted to be doing poetry or writing song lyrics. A rumble and a hiss and a boom and a swish. <laughs> then the wave of molasses swept out. <laughs> So initially, hearing about a molasses flood, you might picture something out of uh, like the kids' film, Sunny with a Chance of Meatballs. A silly misadventure <laughs> where the people of town get to swim in pools of molasses like it's water. But the reality was very, very different. Famously, molasses is a highly viscous and slow-moving material, but on this day, the cascade of sugar traveled the streets of Boston at 35 miles per hour, or 56 kilometers per hour. Oh my gosh. Isn't that insane? It honestly feels like the right speed. It's just crazy to hear. I think it sounds way too fast. I can't even imagine being hit with a, a wave of water coming at you at 35 miles an hour. Right, and this is more dense. Much more dense. The <laughs> theory is that because warm molasses had been added to the tank the day prior, the thermal expansion caused by the contact with the cooler molasses already inside the container caused it to rip open. Science is weird. It's weird. I don't mean to imply the laws of physics are weird. I mean more to imply that like, why we have to think about that in perspective of molasses. I know, I know. And uh, it's something they should have thought about when building the tanks because they would warm the molasses when they would be transferring it intentionally because that would make it flow more easily into the tank. But as we'll touch on, they didn't often fully fill up the tank except for two days before this event. Before I get into talking about what happened when it exploded, I just want you to take a guess, Rowan. How big do you think the wave of molasses was like how much space did it take up like how tall did it get as it crashed tall. through the city mm -hmm. i'm gonna guess mm, uh, four stories three stories great guess don't know how many feet that is 56 so your final guess is 56 feet it feels cocky now <laughs> yeah 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 um okay so this I'm, 35 I'm... mile per hour wave Came crashing it's only going through up the to the second Boston. floor. Yeah, it is. It was between 15 to 25 feet tall, with its peak at somewhere around 35 feet. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was building up, like, can you imagine? What number could you imagine not realizing, like, numbers go above 25? <laughs> <laughs> My problem is I have no perspective on yeah. how a molasses flood ought to go. <laughs> oh, well, the good news is that it ought not to. So you shouldn't have much perspective. <laughs> so this 15 to 25 foot tall wave crashed through the city of Boston at 35 miles an hour, destroying nearly everything that it came into contact with, be it people, animals, buildings, or even the steel beams of the train platform. Yeah. Entire buildings were swept off their foundation and crushed in this wave of molasses. To quote history.com, quote, the Engine 31 firehouse was knocked clean off its foundation, causing its second story to collapse into its first... The nearby Clarity House, meanwhile, was swept away and dashed against the elevated train platform. Martin Clarity, having just woken up, watched his home crumble around him before being thrown <gasps> into the current. I was in bed on the third floor of my house when I heard a deep rumble, he remembered. When I awoke, it was in several feet of molasses. 
Clarity nearly drowned in the gooey whirlpool before climbing atop his own bed frame, which he discovered floating nearby. The barman used the makeshift boat to rescue his sister Teresa, but his mother and younger brother were among those killed in the disaster. He lived! He lived. He and his sister lived, but his mother and younger brother did not. But he had to use his own bed as a makeshift boat to get them to safety. It feels like that one Tomb Raider where the city is flooding and you have to bounce across things. And she will not ever stop running. So if you don't keep up, she runs into the water. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and imagine it's like, you know how when you're a kid, they make you think that quicksand is going to be a much bigger part of your life than it actually ever is? Not for these people. I'm embarrassed to say I've never encountered quicksand. No, most people haven't. But boy, was I scared of it as a kid. Oh, big same. Big same. And turns out molasses may be more likely. As it turns out, molasses might be more likely to be afraid of. A total of 21 men, women, and children, including two of the three children I mentioned earlier, Maria D'Astasio and Pasquale Iantosca, were killed. Approximately 150 more people were injured during the events of the day. Relatively quickly after the wave crashed over the streets of Boston, it began to recede and the scale of the disaster was made clear. The Boston Post wrote, quote, Here and there struggled a form. Whether it was animal or human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass, showed where any life was. End quote. So there's a quote I'll reference later that I think really highlights the story well. When you hear Great Molasses Flood, Molasses Disaster, like, it's kind of funny. It's like, oh my god, a a flood of molasses? That sounds like a very silly story. And then the more you dive into it, the more you realize what an actual tragedy this event was in our history. Right. And I think the problem is Flood feels like it should be hyperbole. Yes. You know? Yes. Oh my god, is it? Is this going to become a bug in amber situation? No, people are not preserved in this molasses. Okay, so it doesn't harden? Oh, it does, but people are not preserved in this molasses. Right, right. I just, it didn't occur to me that it was going to harden until right now. Oh, yeah. So actually, why don't you scroll down a little bit and look at the picture I have? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, (laughs) you were right. Oh, no. So this photo is of a steel welder cutting through the molasses after the flood. Rowan, I'll let you describe it for our audience. Yeah, Trace, you had the picture for the thing I panicked about. It So there's a man in roughly the middle of the frame who's bent over. He's got, it looks like overalls on with a, a woolen sweater and then a newsboy cap or maybe like a a golfing style cap it's hard to tell from this angle um he looks like he might have oh they're waiters he's wearing waiters Mm -hmm. okay that go all the way up and he's bent over and around him there are what looks like it could be either cables or like bent rebar like clearly destruction wreckage of steel yeah and then behind him there is clearly like a bent piece of something that ought not to be bent so a big piece of steel or uh drywall's the wrong thing but like a big Mm -hmm. sheet of something that keeps the outside out Mm -hmm. and then right in front of him there's it almost looks like glass in the picture you can tell it's reflective not purely but a bit translucent in Mm -hmm. some capacity and he is welding it he he is literally trying to cut through the molasses yeah you can see the line of light 
from where he's been welding. It, I, <laughs> it's really unfortunate that this is a podcast because I, I need to be saying something, but God, is this a bit brain breaking. Yeah, it's, it looks like he should be welding material. And when you know the context that he's welding and well, he's cutting through molasses to try and find people objects we don't just know get what it out of the for. way yeah exactly it's insane so evan andrews wrote for the history channel that quote police and firefighters arrived at the disaster scene within minutes as did over 100 sailors from the navy ship uss nantucket the first responders struggled to wade through the quicksand like molasses which had begun to harden in the winter chill but they soon began plucking survivors from the wreckage. The most dramatic rescue took place at the Engine 31 firehouse, where several of the men from the lunchtime card game were trapped in a molasses-flooded pocket of space <gasps> on the collapsed first floor. Workers freed the survivors after several hours of cutting away floorboards and debris, but not before one of the firefighters lost his strength and drowned, end quote. Oh no, to drown because you can't swim anymore. Yeah. In molasses which is has to be infinitely more difficult to stay afloat in especially as a firefighter who you think are people who have experience existing in their physical bodies right mm -hmm. the next few weeks were dedicated to a combination of search and rescue work as well as cleanup many of the deceased remained missing for several days and the remains of one victim a wagon driver named cesare nicolo were not fished out of the nearby boston harbor until almost four months after the flood mm. The scale of this disaster is really hard to comprehend when it feels like it should be something silly and then it turns out to be something devastating. And actually, I should have asked before because you and I have some information on this being from where we're from and having the familial backgrounds that we have, Irish, in your case, Irish and Italian. Yeah. Uh, Boston, there was a bit of a turf war going on at the time between the Irish and the Italian immigrants, no? Yes, absolutely. And this area in particular was famously um, heavily populated by Irish and Italian immigrants. And not only heavily populated by Irish and Italian immigrants, it, the area of Commercial Street where this happened, the neighborhood, at the time was the most densely populated neighborhood in the entire country. So it's no surprise that that... <laughs> is part of why this was such a big disaster. There was nowhere for anyone to go. And there were so many people. I mean, there were people who were overlooking the molasses tank when this happened from their homes. Right, and I'm not getting the sense that this is a particularly wealthy area. No, it's a highly populated commercial area um, in a different way than it is now. And now, if you go to this area, the only thing that you'll see about this is a single plaque that mentions the Boston molasses disaster. Wow. Mm -hmm. So I would have to look into it to get the years accurate and really could have an episode of its own. But the, the thing about Boston is when Irish immigrants were moving in, and I'll actually get into this a little bit in mine, um, from pre-Revolutionary War colonialism on, British immigrants didn't want Irish immigrants around. There was a mm -hmm. lot of, you are a lesser human than me going on. So Irish immigrants were discriminated against and then ended up kicking the can down the road when they all became the cops. So to get out of being discriminated against, they became the enforcers, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know the history on the Italian side quite as well, but Boston was not an easy place to live. 
especially not if you weren't wealthy. Yeah, and this was not the wealthiest area to live in, even though it was an extremely popular commercial area. I mean, it's named Commercial Street, obviously, but it was where the docks were and a lot of the dock workers and molasses workers and all the people who helped with that business, they lived in these areas. But that doesn't mean the wealthy people lived in these areas. So now it's time for a little bit of science. Yes, Tracy always <laughs> brings the science. Researchers and scientists have been fascinated by this flood, studying the causes behind it as a phenomenon of science and poor engineering. I think this quote from Mark Rossow, a civil engineer and professor, really sums up the experience of researching this disaster. Quote, first you kind of laugh at it, then you read about it, and it was just horrible. End quote. According to Ronald Mayville, an engineer who researches the flood in his spare time, there is no surefire reason that the tank failed. However, he stated that one thing is very clear, quote, the tank was underdesigned. Whoever did the design failed to provide the adequate thickness of the steel. On top of that, the steel that they used, although it was state of the art of the day, we know today that it could be relatively brittle under certain circumstances, end quote. Emily Son writes for the History Channel that in the immediate aftermath, news coverage included speculation about fermentation that produced too much pressure inside the tank. Ooh. While others blamed anarchists for setting off a bomb. And people see what they want to see. Yes, Absolutely. The trial that ensued from this event lasted for years and gathered input from thousands of expert witnesses, producing 20,000 pages of conflicting testimony. Ultimately, U.S. Industrial Alcohol, the company that owned the tank, was found liable, even as many questions remained about what had actually happened. Isn't it fascinating getting to the age where you're not just like, oh yeah, things hold things. Bridge is bridge. Like, just thinking about the time and energy and thought that needs to go into the materials it requires, the engineering. Yes. I'm about to put myself on blast here, but I remember when my college roommate switched to engineering for a semester before she eventually settled on computer science. I asked her, what is engineering? What, do, what would you do? I didn't even have a concept. And she was like, well, you know, you make things. Anything that you touch has been engineered by someone. Someone designed it. And that, like, blew my mind in college. And now when I look at things, I think about how everything I interact with, there is a person behind the creation of that. Yeah. It's like Sonder. Like you have to remember that other people have internal monologues like you. You have to remember that things don't just exist. Yeah. So the company was found liable. Did they have to pay? Like, did they have to pay money or like, did they pay? <laughs> so according to Chambers Associate, the company was to blame for all of the carnage, their words. Settlements for more than 100 claims were made out of court, and the United States Industrial Alcohol Company ultimately paid more than $600,000 in out-of-court settlements, about $10 million in 2013 dollars. And the survivors of those killed were reportedly given $7,000 per victim. I was just going to ask you how much the total was roughly in today's money. So thank you for knowing that that's what I would want. <laughs> <laughs> thank yeah. you to that website for having great information for me. It never feels like enough. But that's because no. you can't put a number on humanity. On life. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And unfortunately, there are people whose job it is to, is to do exactly that. 
But more recent investigations of this event suggest that there were several fundamental problems with the structure of the tank. It was designed to hold 2.5 million gallons of liquid. It measured 50 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter. But its steel walls, which ranged from 0.67 inches at the bottom to 0.31 inches at the top, were too thin to support the weight of a full tank of molasses. The rivets were also poorly designed and too much stress was placed upon them, causing cracks almost immediately. Lastly, the steel was mixed with too little manganese, causing it to become brittle at temperatures below 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh. Remember, this event happened on a 40 degree day. Right. And although the molasses had been poured into the container 29 times since the tank was created, only four of those refills were to near capacity. The fourth top-off happened two days before the disaster when the ship arrived from Puerto Rico carrying 2.3 million gallons of molasses. At that point, the tank held enough molasses to fill 3.5 Olympic-sized swimming pools. That's a lot of sugar. That's a lot of syrupy goo, yeah. Syrupy goo? Syrupy goo, baby. <laughs> Ooh, <yooey. laughs> The amount of different ways people describe molasses in the articles became increasingly hilarious to me. People describe it as, like, the great brown flood, the gooey piles, the sticky masses. The, like, right. Yeah, because you can't just keep saying it over and over. Right. You just got a synonym. In, you got to invent synonyms at this point. Mm-hmm. Why am I thinking of molasses and over the garden wall? I can't remember what the line is. Potatoes and molasses. Thank you. Potatoes it's the whole song. and molasses. I could sing the whole song right now. I won't, but I could. And I want everyone to know that. Hey, it's potatoes and molasses. It's the only thing left on your task list. <laughs> Mark Rossow, who I mentioned earlier, wrote that, quote, When a laborer brought actual shards of steel from the tank's walls into the treasurer's office as evidence of potential danger, he replied, I don't know what you want me to do. The tank still stands. End quote. Shut your mouth. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're going to get more, more angry. There were many opportunities to avoid this disaster, but no one took the idea of a molasses flood seriously until it was too late. And according to the History Channel, Nicole Sharp, an aerospace engineer in Denver and author of FYFD, a fluid dynamics website, became interested in the molasses flood after helping teach a class at Harvard University in which a group of undergraduate students created a scale model of the event. They released a vat of corn syrup into a tiny cardboard Boston and used high-speed cameras to film what happened. I watched as the corn syrup engulfed tiny figurines, Sharp says. It would be like having a tsunami wave hit you. It made me want to look into the physics of the accident." End quote. She was particularly intrigued by reports of how fast the molasses flowed. Molasses, which is 1.5 times denser than water, is notoriously slow to pour. But in the flood, molasses, which is a non-Newtonian fluid like ketchup or toothpaste, would have moved as a gravity current, much like a mudslide, avalanche, or lava flow. Based on the features of molasses, Sharp's calculations confirmed that the initial wave could have moved as quickly as 35 miles an hour. Oof, it's too fast for molasses, if you ask me. I like my molasses slow. <laughs> The legal case that resulted from this event set the stage for future class action lawsuits and was the first case in which expert witnesses were called to a great extent, such as engineers, metallurgists, architects, and other technical people. The case also completely changed the relationship between business and government. Historian Stephen Puglio claims that, quote, all the things we now take for granted in the business, that architects need to show their work, that engineers need to sign and seal their plans, that building inspectors need to come out and look at projects, all of that came about as a result of the great Boston molasses flood case, end quote. So we've got some safety regulations at least out of it. Well, 
this is a, a reflection of the fact that America decided that the way to oversee companies was to react with mm -hmm. the law. That's how we check companies. A lot of other countries that have higher happiness ratings than we do don't react. They are proactive mm -hmm. with regulation. Yeah. So that's just a, a piece of that puzzle coming in together. For a short time, the story was all anyone could talk about. The molasses flood was so big that it knocked off the prohibition amendment from the front page of newspapers. <laughs> Right? That's shocking. I know. Even today, the flood lives on in neighborhood folklore. And according to Nick Labonte from Polkari's Coffee, quote, supposedly you can still smell the molasses when it gets hot enough, end quote. I believe that. Yeah, people, that's a big thing you've heard from the day it happened through today. People say in the summertime, you can smell molasses. It's heartbreaking because it sounds like it ought to be funny. Everyone's right. Right. That That's the thing with the story. It starts out where, where you're laughing, and then by the end, you are just hit with the revelation of how devastating it really was. But now it is time for me to tell you a story. Thank you. My grandmother never liked to eat anything sweet. In fact, whenever the scent of sugar was in the air around us, she would leave the room or cover her nose with a delicate handkerchief and scurry quickly away. I once saw her choose to stand next to the pig pens rather than the pie stands at the state fair. As a child, I used to ask my mom why grandma never wanted to eat birthday cake or cookies or anything else my child brain decided was delicious with me. My mother told me that one day grandma would tell me the reason herself, but that I shouldn't ask her about it until she told me the story. So I stayed quiet for years, always wondering but never asking my grandmother the reason. Finally... On a crisp winter evening just after my 11th birthday, Grandma and I were sitting by the fireplace together drinking tea. She was staring absently into the flames as though her mind were far away from where we sat. I was watching Home Improvement, and eventually she turned to me and asked, Did I ever tell you what happened to me on this day 73 years ago? I froze. Was this the story my mom told me about? It had to be, right? What other story could have such an ominous opening? I tried to act nonchalant. Well, mm, no, I, I don't think you have. But I'd love to hear about it. As I rapidly turned the volume down on Tim Allen, that distant look came back into her eyes and she began speaking. Normally a woman of few words, this was perhaps the most I'd ever heard my grandmother speak at one time. She told me the story of the Great Molasses Flood. She said that she was young at the time, just 11 years old. But back in those days, 11 years old meant she was watching her three younger siblings all day while still going to school. Though education for women wasn't valued as highly, so most of her time was spent helping to raise her siblings, and she found ways to learn reading and math where she could. Her father worked at the fire station, and he often left before dawn and returned home well after dark, and her mother was a laundress and house cleaner who also spent most of her time at work. Grandma said she rarely complained about watching her siblings since she saw how hard her parents worked to provide for all of them. She remembered that it was lunchtime. She'd just gotten her youngest sister to agree to drink her glass of milk when she heard a loud bang off in the distance. She says for some reason all she could notice was the glass of milk on the table begin to shake almost immediately afterwards. The bang echoed through the streets and was replaced with a moment of terrifying silence. The kind of silence that heralded death. Grandma could never explain why she did what she did next, but she simply acted on instinct, 
She grabbed all three of her siblings, grateful that she had just collected them for lunch, and hauled them with her up the stairs. She held her two-year-old sister Anne, while eight-year-old Ronnie carried four-year-old Rose up the stairs of their house to the side as far away from the sound as she could get. She said the next part happened in a blur. There was a long whoosh sound that echoed through the buildings. It was quickly followed by the sound of screams. She frantically covered the ears of her little sister, hoping to drown out the screams, and suddenly it was like a tsunami hit the house. The whole thing shook violently, and Grandma was scared it would rip right out of the ground and sweep them all away. She said she kept whispering to her siblings that everything would be okay, while she was terrified that it wouldn't be. After what felt like hours and hours, eventually the shaking stopped and the house remained standing. Grandma got up to check out the situation, and she carefully made her way down the stairs and was shocked to see that most of the first floor had been destroyed by a giant wave of molasses. The entire kitchen where she'd just been sitting with her siblings a few minutes ago was covered in brown goo. She thought of all the times she'd snuck over to the molasses tank with her friends to sneak a free spoonful of the sweet confection. And now the thought made her stomach sour, and she turned back up the stairs to find her siblings again. The four children waited in that back room for a few hours before their mother was finally able to make it back to them. She came rushing into the house, barely able to make it past the still cooling piles of molasses on the ground, and clutched her children to her as tightly as she could. They all held each other for a very long time, Grandma recalled. Her father never made it home from the station that day. He'd managed to save at least three others before succumbing to the molasses himself. Grandma said the whole world smelled like molasses for weeks after the disaster. She could even smell it in the air during her father's memorial service. It was since that day that she couldn't stand the sickly sweet smell of sugar and avoided it at all costs. 73 years later and she said she still couldn't get the smell out of her mind. But every single year on the anniversary of the event, she, her mother, and her siblings would get together at their father's grave and leave flowers. And every year, Without fail on the tombstone, there would be molasses cookies and a thank you note waiting from the families of the people her father had saved that day. As she finished her story, I realized that for the first time in my 11 years of being alive, I finally understood my grandmother. She'd been my age when she'd saved her brother and sisters from a literal molasses flood, and she'd lost her father on the same day. Meanwhile, the most difficult challenge I faced was figuring out how to play Ryu in Street Fighter 2. From that day on, my grandmother and I made it a monthly event that we would get together, make some tea, and talk about her life and experiences. And it was always my favorite day of the month. I'm so glad you made a story about the children who would go and get the free the syrup from the tank dripping yeah. out and then being affected by the flood because that was the detail that felt so poignant and emotional to me. Right. I wanted to cover a lot of things with this story. I wanted to touch on the children who would go and, you know, enjoy the free molasses and have fun with it and being affected by it. What experiencing something like this could do to you for your whole life? And, and the idea to me was scent is such a trigger for memory. Oh, Yeah. So I wanted to kind of encapsulate that and what that would mean for someone. And then I just, I also went down a rabbit hole. Uh, so the, the story is set in 1992. Uh, and I researched the top shows, music, toys, and video games that would have been around at the time. And the molasses flood happened on Wednesday, January 15th, 1919. And this story took place on Wednesday, January 15th, 1992, 73 years later. 
amazing. I don't know why I hyperfixated on those details, but you know when you just find something and you're like, no, this needs to be accurate? That was what I did. Um, I just had to... I, I spent a lot of my childhood loving to talk to my grandfather about his life. You know, he was alive during the Great Depression and learning yeah. about that, learning about his experiences during World War II, that it was important for me to get to write a story where someone could hear about their grandparents' experience of something so big. Grandparents are such a valuable resource. They're just stories and, and memories are so important. And that's why it's so tragic when you're, you're cut off from a legacy and not even necessarily grandparents, but just the legacy of the people who came mm-hmm. before you. You highlighted what we talk about all the time. I feel like you and I have for a long time talked about like specifically our grandparents because we grew up together and right. spending time s- effectively sitting at their lap and listening to stories of their life. And the thing that I've always loved or I loved when my grandma would tell stories was like the little details that she included that are so human Mm -hmm. that don't get included in these broader stories. Yeah, there are so many. I mean, I think about and it's it's not even just my grandparents. I think about my my parents and my uncles and aunts, the way they talk. And I have this one uncle who was, you know, he's one of those where he's not technically my uncle, but he's my uncle. I have so many of those lovely (laughs) humans. Yes. So he used to tell stories about my, so my grandmother um, was a very quiet, soft-spoken Irish Catholic woman. I mean, she had a 50-pound bag of potatoes next to the back door and she would put a pot of water on the stove boil some potatoes, and then decide what to make for dinner. That's my grandmother. That's lovely. I know. And she was an awful cook. Amazing seamstress. Hated to cook. And would uh, force everyone to just keep eating the food until it was gone, and then she'd make the next meal. And that is why my father, to this day, won't eat leftovers. He won't do it. That's uh, coming from a, a culture that's faced famine. Yeah. Or starvation. Yeah. Absolutely. But my uncle always told stories of how he would call the house and it would ring and it would ring and it would ring. And as soon as it stopped ringing and there was a long silence, he would just go, hello, Mrs. Harrison, is Richard there? Because <laughs> she was so quiet, you couldn't even hear her over the phone. That's so sweet. Right? Like, it's little stories like that that you would just never know. I so badly want to have a smooth transition from grandparents to my topic, which is moonshine. Um mm-hmm. But I don't. So grandparents and moonshine, am I right? <laughs> I mean, when you're right, you're right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if there's one thing I know, it's I can rely on you to back me up. Uh, thank you. Every time. Always. You got it. But actually, to be fair, this story is one that I chose because it's very ingrained in, like, Appalachian culture, mm-hmm. which is very close to where we grew up. You and I are very familiar with it, uh, the immigrants that created the Appalachia that we know today had a lot of shared history uh, mm-hmm. with the immigrants that created where we live. So this will be interesting. So today I'm covering Moonshine, Rockgut, Branchwater, White Lightning, Firewater, Skull Pop. Just a wealth of good names. Really good names. There is a 2018 CNN article that says, quote, Moonshine is as American as apple pie, which cracks me up because... There is moonshine in other countries, meaning liquor that is produced illegally, but moonshine in America is basically what happens when you mix tax evasion, alcohol, and immigration. Mm. 
And those three things are pretty American. Mm, Yes. So during the colonial days, apparently there was this saying that went, quote, the English will arrive in the New World and the first thing they will do is build a church. The Germans will build a barn, but the Scotch-Irish will build a whiskey still. (laughs) This quote is based on a lot of the discrimination that was happening pre, during, post-revolutionary war. That's Mm -hmm. what I mentioned during your story. In the years before the American Revolution, Scotch-Irish immigrants were moving into northern Irish communities in the primarily English North American colonies. And I want to be specific because Scotch-Irish sounds like I'm just hyphenating like, oh, people from Scotland and people from Ireland, but that's not the case. So to quote our dear friend Wikipedia, Scotch-Irish or Scots-Irish, Americans are American descendants of Ulster Protestants who emigrated from Ulster in Northern Ireland to America during the 18th and 19th centuries, whose ancestors had originally migrated to Ireland, mainly from the Scottish Lowlands and Northern England in the 17th century. Cool. That's a little bit spicy. But the reason Northern Irish people really didn't like them is that English folks put those Ulster Protestants there in Northern Ireland, Mm, effectively creating the problem that would eventually be Catholics versus Protestants. Oh, my God. So the what a phrase that was used a lot in my reading was Aboriginal Irish. So the Aboriginal Irish people were upset that their land was being taken from them by Mm -hmm. English people. And then the folks who would eventually become Scotch Irish were like, we need to live somewhere. And we're not calling the shots. So... The Scotch-Irish moved up into the Appalachian Mountains, which were fairly isolating, and their culture thrived almost kind of in its own vacuum, Mm -hmm. to the extent that the accent still thrives in the mountain regions today, and many Appalachian folks technically have more, quote, Scottish blood than those who live in Scotland. That's wild. Yeah, that raises a lot of identity culture. A lot of people have been talking about it. Uh, Because, you know, folks who are from places like Ireland or Scotland get really annoyed sometimes Mm. when Americans say, oh, I'm Irish. It's complicated, but it's fascinating. Yeah. So they brought with them their ability to produce whiskey, and they adapted the wheat and rye recipes to the corn that's easily Mm. grown on our continent. And corn liquor was a great way to utilize crops that would otherwise spoil the liquid was more easy to transport because it took up less space than sacks of grain. Oh, that makes sense. Cool Material writes, quote, Their lives in the Appalachians were based mostly on subsistence farming and what little money they needed they either obtained selling their spirits or they cut out the middleman completely and made whiskey their currency. Because they lived in isolation and were fueled mostly by homemade whiskey and emotional instability, they got a (laughs) reputation for being drinkers and brawlers, which would come in handy not long after they arrived in the colonies. It must take a long time to forget you hate the English, because during the revolution, the descendants of those early immigrants came down hard on the invading army. They claimed one of the earliest victories of the war, killing hundreds of British troops, including a general, and winning high praise from Washington himself, end quote. There is so much going on in that quote that is amazing and insane, but I am just stuck on they were fueled mostly by homemade whiskey and emotional instability, because that is, I need someone to make that their tagline on 
Instagram, Twitter, whatever social media you're on. That's it's the funniest so description. If I wasn't allergic to alcohol, that would be my byline. We're fueled by something, an emotional instability. Hey, listeners, let us know what we're fueled by. I don't know. <laughs> now, I want so badly to skip over the Whiskey Rebellion, because if you're an American who went to public school, especially living in the Northeast, where we're from, you studied the Whiskey Rebellion over and over on repeat at the expense of a wider majority of history lessons. Yeah. But I can't really discuss moonshine without it. Mm. So we're just going to try to power through. After the Revolutionary War and the formation of the United States, the federal government needed quite a lot of money to pay for their war debts. Enter everyone's favorite musical star, Alexander Hamilton. Hey, there he is. In 1791, he was the Treasury Secretary and believed that taxing the most popular alcohol at the time, whiskey, would solve the debt problem. The whiskey tax did not go well. It went so badly, in fact, that Western Pennsylvanians, woo, woo, this is why we got it hammered into our heads so much in school. Yeah. So they staged the Whiskey Rebellion, the largest confrontation between American citizens in that pocket between the Revolutionary and the Civil War. Mm-hmm. In the Mental Floss article, A Brief History of Moonshine, Claire McClafferty writes, quote, For the next three years, distillers held off the tax collectors by less than legal means, which brought a U.S. marshal to Pennsylvania to collect the taxes owed. More than 500 men attacked the area's tax inspector general's home. Their commander was killed, which inspired a protest of nearly 6,000 people, end quote. That's pre-internet. That's so many. And the less than legal means that they're talking about is referencing the fact that they would just tar and feather tax collectors. So they're operating in really sporadic groups right now. It wasn't until that violent force that went after the inspector general's home that everything Mm -hmm. coalesced. And that was in 1794. That same year, President George Washington led 12,950 militiamen against the revolt. There were less than five casualties among the protesters, and about 15 or less soldiers died of natural causes during the three-year conflict. I'm picturing a tough-as-nails old grandpa who just dies of old age fighting in this war. And, like, winning. Like, tougher than the other soldiers. Yeah, it's interesting, because this is the beginning of the resentment between folks from Appalachia and the federal government, or rather, it's a big moment of it coming to a head. And concessions were made, and people agreed to pay the tax, and and then some people didn't, and they made moonshine about it. <laughs> Got it. It's worth note that the United States was passing laws that specifically prohibited the sale of alcohol to Native Americans in the 18th century, which is only a small part of the continued mistreatment of First Nations people throughout North America. Mm -hmm. Mm, And making moonshine would become associated with the idea of hillbillies, which is a mythos that I talked about in our Hatfields and McCoys episode. Yes, please, please go listen to the Hatfields and McCoys episode if you haven't already. Thomas Jefferson repealed the excise tax in 1802, and people went back to making whiskey. People in Appalachia and the South 
dodged taxes, but eventually the Civil War came, and by this point, moonshine was an important way to make money in rural areas. So when the government created the Internal Revenue Service... Oh my god, everyone's favorite governmental branch. Our sweet, sweet friends, the IRS... They were trying to get ahead on future war debts that would come from the Civil War. So they sent tax collectors out to collect taxes on luxuries, quote, Mm. like tobacco and liquor. Post-Civil War, revenue agents shut down major moonshining operations nearer to metropolitan areas, but they could never stop the smaller operations that were farther out. In the late 19th century, it was not uncommon for IRS agents to get into shootouts or be ambushed by the farmers and folks who lived in the mountainous regions where a gallon of moonshine was worth more than a bushel of corn. The idea of IRS agents getting into shootouts for the time makes complete sense, but I am imagining a modern IRS agent in an old-timey Western shootout. Honestly, same. (laughs) It feels like such a modern concept, it's hard to imagine... IRS agents walking around pre and post Civil War. It's wild also to imagine IRS agents being like, yep, just gonna go up into the mountains where people like to ambush me to collect the taxes. Okay. Mm hmm. Let me just get shot or tarred (laughs) and feathered, depending on the year. Yeah. Many parts of the country over the course of this entire legacy viewed taxing liquor as, quote, Yankee tyranny. By the late 1880s, the temperance movement was picking up, and then by 1915, many counties, especially in the South, prohibited the production and sale of alcohol. So moonshine found itself caught between a rock and a hard place. And the rock was temperance, and the hard place was federal government taxation, and that is a really great way for illegal businesses to boom. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. And I'm just going to deviate really quickly to talk about why it's deadly, because I'm just swooping into our deadly drinks episode like moonshine, huh? (laughs) (laughs) When people talk about moonshine being deadly, they're referring to the fact that home distillers would sometimes make bad batches or utilize downright horrifying distilling processes that could lead to the production of dangerous chemicals. So while ethanol is the desired alcohol. Sometimes moonshiners would create methanol, which could acidify the blood, cause blindness, (gasps) seizures, and death. Oh my God. And moonshine is created in a still. And if you want to know how to make it, there are a lot of really great places online. You can still make it today. But the process is like cook, capture vapor, liquefy. Cook, capture vapor, cool, liquid. Mm. So moonshine can be up to about 150 proof or 75% alcohol by volume. Unreal amount of alcohol in it. It, Insanity. Hey, remember when I covered absinthe? That seems like child's play. Yeah. And if you're sitting there thinking, ah, yes, without the FDA and oversight, things must have just been dirty. Uh, I would also like you to consider that moonshiners distilled in car radiators. So the situation isn't just unreliable, it's fancy deadly. (laughs) I like describing it as fancy deadly. It's just a little spicy risky. Yeah. Moonshiners developed their own codes and ways of ensuring quality because 
If you're a moonshine distiller selling to your own community, you can't just go around killing folks that you know. Yeah, that's not great for business or relationships. Hard pass. So if you've ever seen bottles in cartoons that are marked with the triple X label. Oh, yeah. That marking showed that moonshine was run through the still three times, providing that higher alcohol content. Okay, there is a part of my brain that knew it had to have a meaning. Obviously, things don't just exist with no meaning, but I never thought about it. And that's really interesting. I didn't think about it either, to be honest. I was like, I don't know, that's just how they show alcohol in old cartoons. Sometimes cartoons only have four fingers, so, you know... Yeah, what's real and what's not. (laughs) Moonshiners and bootleggers are distinctly different. A moonshiner is a maker of illegal liquor, and a bootlegger is a distributor. But like many career paths, one can do both. Mm -hmm. You can have it all. Get you a girl who can do both. Oh, hell yeah. Moonshine University... Um, oh my god, yes. my alma mater. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, now we need t-shirts. <laughs> Moonshine University is so good. It's so good. So Moonshine University writes, the term bootlegger originated in the 1880s when smugglers would hide flasks in their boot tops. Of course, oh. when cars entered the picture, its meaning was expanded to include anyone who smuggled liquor, end quote. I always knew it was someone who smuggled liquor. I did know the difference between moonshiner and bootlegger, but I didn't know the origin of the term. I can't say I cared. <laughs> you know, the sad thing is, it was really a, a terrible Christmas movie where one character, they're like, you were a, a bootlegger. And he's like, we prefer the term rum runner. And that was what <laughs> made me remember the difference. That's actually very funny. <laughs> yeah. From the 18th to the 20th century, transporting moonshine was a fairly cost-effective deal. It was easy to transport because of its high alcohol content, so per ounce you're getting more valuable Mm. uh, compared to beer and wine and whiskey. And those liquors could fetch better prices during Prohibition, but bootleggers didn't have to cross the Mexican or Canadian borders to get moonshine. Mm -hmm. And they did. There was moonshine coming from other places. It's just... Boy, is it nice when something's made locally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hey, friends, shop local. Yeah. Go to your illegal spirit distiller for your methanol (laughs) poisoning. (laughs) As recommended by us, apparently. (laughs) I don't want to emphasize that too much because, you know, moonshine was made in perfectly fine ways. That's why I'm saying, like, it's not that deadly. No, it's, it's like we say with a lot of things. It's the myth around it. It's the exceptions acting like they're the rule, kind of all those things. I just remember as a kid, people saying like, oh, moonshine will blind you, which it will. It will. Uh, it's made badly, yeah. Right. But I always just thought like, all moonshine, all moonshine. I did too. You. And totally. I was like, why is this in liquor stores? Why do, yeah, I was like, why do people drink it? Absolutely. I was in the same boat. So Tracy, I have a picture for you. Ooh. And this is a bootlegger's trick for hiding moonshine. Okay. So we're looking at the back of a truck. Um... It's a black and white photo. There's a truck with, I think, long lines of lumber that go from the very back to the front, uh, sort of, I guess, horizontally, if you're looking at the truck from the side. Um, And then there is a man crouched down on one side of the truck. Looks like he's holding something or pulling a chain. I think he pulled the curtains up. 
Okay. Because there and are then curtains there's... on the side of the truck, like like tarps. Oh, yeah. And then on the other side is a man holding a square cutout of the back end of the – what's the word for the It's a lumber? false wall. It's a false wall. And it opens into a hole inside the truck, so it's not actually transporting lumber. Like so It looks like it is. It's able to transport liquor. It's brilliant because the ends of the – boards are square so cutting a square out of it won't reveal itself as easily because they're also all different lengths and shapes and sizes so it's even though it's cut into a square when you put it back into place it'll be hard to identify that it is a square because everything is rough and different sizes it's so brilliant it is and it's also worth noting that the guy holding the sort of door to the false wall has a really big gun strapped to his hip. He looks like a police officer, right? He does look like a police officer. He's got a little vest. The guy on the left kind of looks like a Mountie. He's got the hat. Yeah, I don't know, but it's great. I want to crawl inside and also, I don't know, be sneaky. Oh, yeah. What would I transport? I don't know. I want to be transported in that. It looks fun. So... We can't talk about moonshine without talking about prohibition. Of course. After the ratification of the 18th Amendment on January 16th, 1919, moonshine production boomed. Just to be clear, the 18th Amendment banned the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors. This meant that getting alcohol was illegal, but drinking alcohol was not So this led to fun loopholes like doctor-prescribed alcohol. Mm. So because moonshine was only ever expanding, this was a period where moonshiners began jazzing up their product. Because jazzing up what you're selling has existed since selling existed. the dawn of time. Yeah. They would add fruits like apricots, raisins, or prunes. Ooh. But... Importantly, they also realized that the strength of the alcohol was what people were after. So some brewers would add toxic chemicals to help the kick, things like nail polish remover, gasoline, rubbing alcohol, paint thinner, embalming fluid, and even manure. I'll take things I don't want to drink for 200, Alex. This is the deadly bit, right? You know, bad actors. Oof. Later, the 21st Amendment passed, repealing the 18th and ending Prohibition. The production and sale of moonshine declined when people gained easy access to the fancy booze like whiskey again. Mm -hmm. Additionally, during that time, moonshine, the term, had expanded to include just illegal liquor. So, like, bathtub gin was also falling under that term. Due to the risks associated with manufacturing and transporting alcohol during Prohibition, moonshine was incredibly expensive. To quote an article in Winning Homebrew, homebrew meaning booze, not D&D, my friends. Uh, quote, bummer. <laughs> <laughs> quote, at the beginning of Prohibition, moonshine producers typically sold their product for around $25 a gallon, which would be over... today if you adjust for inflation. However, these high prices did not last forever. By 1927, the price had declined substantially and was less than half what it had previously sold for at $12 a gallon, which would be $180 today, end quote. 
A gallon. Think, a, think of jugs of milk. Yeah, $180 at the low end. That's insane. That is insane. That's an insane amount of money. And especially for that time, I'm sure that's people's salaries. I, yeah, I, I, I can't really wrap my brain around my understanding of the economy and that math. It, yeah. it feels wild. But listen, people want people want what they want. You mm-hmm. cannot take away things like alcohol and tobacco and be like, no biggie. And if you're the federal government, of course you want to tax it. Yeah. Okay, Trace, this is the guessing game for my portion of the episode. Okay. A bootlegger who was caught transporting alcohol could be sentenced to a maximum of one year in prison and a fine. Guess how much the fine was. You can either guess in their money or our money. It doesn't matter. Um, okay, I'll try and guess in their money. If it sold for, if a gallon of moonshine sold for 325 I have to imagine that they would steeply fine you, but that it also clearly was still worth it. So... I'm guessing they find them $1,000 in their currency. That was a really good guess. They would find them $5,000. Oh, my God. Which is $68,000 today. Oh, my God. That's insane. And I'm, it, I'm sure it didn't really stop people that much, did it? It's too many money. It's way too much money. So... If you were caught more than once, the fine only increased. So it only gets bigger, badder, scarier. Mm. Then, at the same time that Moonshine was on the decline, so now we're on the falling end of this Mm -hmm. economy, the Increased Penalties Act was passed in 1929, raising the fine to $10,000. Oh, my God. That is a stomach-churning amount of money. Imagine being fined over $100,000. I'd rather not. As the industry became riskier, there was less reward. And then on top of that, there was less reward because it just started costing less because there were so many people involved. It's worthy of note that throughout Prohibition, the South remained the largest producer of moonshine. So even though I'm highlighting Appalachia because, again, Tracy and I grew up so near there, the South was also deep into this economy Mm -hmm. because when there's a war or when there's incredible poverty surrounding a war people have to do something now here's the the link that i wasn't expecting moonshine and nascar no uh i i'm i'm surprised by that and i have a nephew who is deeply obsessed with nascar so this should be fun i feel like it's going to be it's going to feel as like, oh, of course, to you as it does to me once I explain it. But I can honestly say I don't think about NASCAR. <laughs> no, no. Aside from when I have to read the NASCAR encyclopedia to my nephew, which is not a children's book. It is just the actual NASCAR encyclopedia. And he makes you pick a page and you just read it to him. That's about as much as I think about NASCAR. You're a good aunt. I love that kid. I'll read him any <laughs> book he wants. <laughs> So now we're going to jump ahead to post-World War II. And that shows you just how loyal parts of America were to this tradition of moonshine. Mm -hmm. During the war, it was difficult to acquire the ingredients that were needed to make this liquor. But afterwards, young men came home to their Appalachian families and 
they would join the distilling businesses that they grew up with, but others came home from the war with a bunch of skills that made them expert-level bootleggers. Enter Robert Glenn Jr. Johnson, Mm -hmm. who's the current face of the moonshine brand Midnight Moon. (laughs) Oh. His family were some of the first moonshiners in America. It his legacy stretches back that far. He grew up in a house filled with the moonshine that his father distilled, so he began bootlegging at 14 years old. Driving a car in that part of the country, uh, at the time he was doing it, at 14, not as rare as... No, not at all. I mean, no. even today in those in certain parts of the country, a 14-year-old who works on a farm, like I have cousins who have a farm, the idea mm-hmm. of a 14-year-old driving the tractor, I think all of them were driving the tractors on the farm before they got their actual licenses. Oh, yeah, of course. And cars on farms, and if if you're up in the mountains, yeah. Okay, so bootleggers needed to be exceptional drivers, mm. especially winding around the twisting mountainous roads. So the industry demanded car modification, not only to store the moonshine, like we talked about in the picture, but also they would soup up their engines. <laughs> So tanker cars, as they were called, were most often 1940 Fords, which doesn't mean very much to me, but Mm -mm. they look great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) These modifications, this skill from having to outrun the cops, led to bootleggers racing each other in their spare time. And then eventually crowds came to watch and prize money became a large part of that racing culture. At one point, Johnson was arrested for bootlegging. And upon release, he became a professional racer. This turned into what we know as NASCAR today, and he was working all through it. He won 50 races throughout his career and was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2010. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. It's wild. Imagining basically a a driving career that started at 14. Mm -hmm. As the story goes, a moonshiner gave founder and former bootlegger Big Bill France the seed money to start up NASCAR. But hey, Trace, I hear you asking... Where are the women Where are in the this women story? In this right? story. Where are the women? We got to know right off the bat before I even get into it that women were involved in moonshining, not the least reason being that it was occurring in family homes. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know how good these stories were going to be. So I found the world's coolest article from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, dated 1896. The title, and titles were long, Uh, I guess, at this time. Mm. Nancy the Moonshiner, a story of New Jersey and its Applejack. How a mysterious woman managed an illicit still by dressing in a man's clothes and stealing apples. She was discovered, but escaped arrest. That's the byline? It's like the title and then the only slightly smaller title. Like, like (laughs) we're measuring in microns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) This article includes gems like, quote, Everybody in the... Wait, should I do the news voice? Oh, of course. Okay. Quote, Everybody in the backcountry drinks Applejack. From the father down to the child, and strange as it may seem, there is rarely a case of drunkenness among them. From the father all the way down to the child. That feels like, um, it's a funny description. It does feel like an exaggeration. I don't think it is. Really? Yeah, kids used to drink. I mean, there was a whole issue of of turn-of-the-century orphans uh, because, okay, 
So immigration, right? Coming into the country, mm-hmm. uh, things are hard, not so much birth control, not so much education. So immigrants would have lots of children, no way to feed them. Then the children would end up on the streets or in orphanages. And a lot of those children ended up alcoholics starting at age like six. Oh, God, that is so uh, bad, sad, awful, all the bad words you can throw at it. And even if you imagine that getting better on kind of a curve, Mm -hmm. still by this time, children could be drinking. And what even is a child? Uh, When do you define childhood? If at some point you just give them a gun and, you know, they're hunting, they're participating in how your family makes money. Right. Childhood, not so sacred. I think it's more the, the it seems that there's rarely a case of drunkenness among them that surprised me. Oh, Tracy, I fundamentally misunderstood you. Yes, you're correct. I think okay. that that is BS. <laughs> yeah, babe, you are so right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, I love the education. It's great. I've been reading a lot about orphans during the turn of the century. <laughs> I think that that's a very you thing to focus on and learn about. And I love that for you. Thank you. I love you so much. Um, (laughs) So we're going to talk about the woman they called Crazy Nancy. And I'll quote the article as I go. Amazing. This history takes place in Warren County, New Jersey in the 1880s. To the disdain of the person who wrote out this article... Nancy lived on two acres in a building that was once a sheep shelter. And I think shelter meaning like to protect them from the winter cold, not like a full-on barn. Hmm. Quote, It was a lonely neighborhood and nobody cared to visit the queer woman who appeared to rather enjoy her isolation than otherwise. Hold on. In case, guys, that quote... It was a lonely neighborhood, and Mm -hmm. nobody cared to visit the queer woman, who appeared to rather enjoy her isolation than otherwise. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I just found myself in this story, yeah. (laughs) I think the writer was just upset she wore man's clothes. (laughs) Oh my god. Team Nancy. She's amazing. It's it's giving old hag, right? Yes. Yes. Witch in the woods. Mm Mm-hmm. So at night, she would visit the various apple farms in the area and rob them of their apples and then use the stolen fruit to make her New Jersey Lightning or Applejack. People began suspecting her over a decade before a government detective named Finch was tasked with following her. Oh my God, this sounds like a novel. It's so good. I would watch this movie. Okay, he took a job as a farmhand in one of the locations where apples were being stolen, but neither he nor anyone else could catch her. And to be clear, they thought the person stealing the apples was a man. Mm. (laughs) Got it. And even when Finch was like, no, Nancy's doing this, like everyone's like, it's Nancy, they thought she was employing a man. It never occurred to them or him that our girl would just put on pants. Oh, my God. To quote the article, She always had money in plenty, and what seemed very strange was the fact that, while the woman appeared to be eccentric and of a lightweight mentally, she could drive a bargain with all the shrewdness of a trained financier. (laughs) Can Can I offer you some salt with this article? Of a lightweight mentally? She doesn't seem that smart. She's not smart. I promise she's not smart. She just drives a really shrewd bargain and is really good at business. Yeah, but not smart. But but don't worry. Not smart. First one to devastate an enemy with 
You seem of a lightweight mentally. Oh, keeping that in mind for my next D&D game. Winner gets Starbucks. It's always you, because I never remember. And you always remember. You're always so good at it. Why do you think winner gets Starbucks? <laughs> <laughs> Give me my matcha. <laughs> so when he couldn't catch her as a farmhand, Finch tried to befriend her. Oh, my God. But to quote the article again, but he made no headway. For the woman apparently had no desire to become acquainted with anyone for any other purpose than to sell them something. End quote. Love it. Love that for her. Yeah. <laughs> Leave me alone unless Leave you want to pay for it. <laughs> yes. Eventually, Finch broke into her house and discovered her moonshine operation hidden under her floorboards. Then he hid in the kitchen under the table and waited for her to come home that night. He attempted to shoot her oh because, my God. as the article said, he began to have some doubts about it being safe to follow up the case single-handed, but he was a courageous fellow and decided to win all the honors for himself, if there were any honors to be had. Finch... I'm still Team Nancy all the way. Yeah, because when he tried to shoot her, Nancy said, bet. She blew out the only candle that was lighting the room. <laughs> he missed his shot, and she knocked him out by smashing a stool into his face. I want to see this movie. The next day, the police uncovered 500 gallons of Applejack beneath Nancy's floorboards, but she was never caught. So even if we're using... The low estimate mm -hmm. of what moonshine would have cost. And we're putting it in today's money. So $180 a gallon. That's $90,000 in today's money underneath her floorboards. Oh, my God. Go, Nancy. There's another badass woman who lived in Franklin County, Virginia. Jamie Joyce writes for Serious Eats, quote, Willie Carter Sharp was one of the most well-known whiskey trippers. Between 1927 and 1931, she transported by car from distiller to customer nearly 145,000 gallons of whiskey. During her testimony at the Moonshine Conspiracy Trial in 1935, she intrigued spectators with her diamond-studded teeth. She'd been arrested more than a dozen times in violation of the National Prohibition Act and did some time at Alderson, the women's prison where Martha Stewart would be sentenced some 70 years later, end quote. She sounds like a time traveler to me. I, I don't... I... Oh, yeah. Going back in time, like, ooh, I know this is going to be a cash grab. Yeah. I mean, especially the diamond-studded teeth. Diamond-studded teeth sound terrifying. It, could, it couldn't be me. I'll tell you what. So, Trace, I have a picture. This is the Moonshiner's daughter. It was taken in 1901. Ooh, okay. It's a black and white photo of a woman, and she's sitting uh, with her hand, her left hand on her cheek and chin. She's kind of leaning into it. It's uh, That elbow is resting on a hay bale. She's got a big bonnet on her head, uh, sort of a like flannel. Big bonnet. Big, big, big bonnet. What you're whatever you're thinking, it's a little bigger. And wider. And, yeah. A kind of flannel, gingham-looking shirt, uh, a big old shotgun in her lap, and a, like, white cotton or linen skirt. And she is um, looking to her right in the, in the image, kind of staring off into the distance in the way that you do in old photos. Yeah, and there's a hay bale, but it's clearly on a set. Yes. So this was from the Library of Congress. I have no way of knowing if this is 
a moonshiner's daughter and then a portrait of her, or if this was someone trying to dress up as what they think a moonshiner's daughter would look right. in 1901, but it's awesome either way. Yeah, it's a cool photo. Inspired by our ladies of moonshine. Tracy, would you like a story? Yes, I would. Content warning, body horror. Once upon a time, where the night was dark and the woods were deep, there lived a young couple very much in love, as is the way with the young people in stories. They lived in a small cabin in a small town, the place high in the mountains where the trees reached up for the clouds like grasping fingers, the air filled with wood smoke and mournful music, and the shine of the moon dressed the world in a bright wash of liquid silver. They married and lived happily together for one year, then another, then one more before the woman fell ill. It was an illness no one understood. She would not eat, would not speak, would not smile. Her bones ached within her skin, and she was tired all the time. Her husband didn't know how to help her, and so sought out the expertise of the town doctor, then the midwife, then the snake oil salesman who came with the turning of the seasons. But with each season that passed, she did not improve. So one night, her husband sought out the madwoman in the woods. She had many names, Mad Mary, Wild Anne, Old Hag, Witch. No one knew her and only sought her out in desperation. But the madwoman had saved lives, more than a few, so the story went. Legend dictated that the husband must seek out the witch at night. Follow the river to the darkest, densest portion of forest until the smell of wood fires turned to the cold scent of peat moss and rot. Her home was tucked in the mouth of the damp caves, and she would see and greet any man long before he realized she was there. The stories were true. Young man, why are you here? The woman stepped from the darkness of her home out into the winter night. Her voice rang out sharply in the cold. Please, he begged having no pride left amidst his desperation. My wife is ill. She will not eat. She will not speak. She will not smile. Help me cure her. The woman's eyes flashed in the darkness like an owl sighting a mouse. She was silent for a long time, letting the man rustle with nervousness, fall into silence, and then fuss again. I will help her, but it will cost you anything said the man, certain that no price could be too great for his wife's happiness. I will give you a potion that will stave off your wife's misery, but you must give me a sliver of your tongue. The man agreed, and as soon as he did, the small woman was upon him, forcing his mouth open and pulling out his tongue with a gnarled hand. She reached so far back into his throat that the man thought he might gag. Then he felt a slow, dragging slash running the length of his tongue, pulling like a hunter's knife through thick sinew. Blood pooled in his mouth and it ran down his chin as the woman extracted the long cut of meat and held it between her fingernails. The witch smiled a crooked and satisfied smile. Then she left him to drink his own viscera, popping the tongue into her mouth and slurping it down. She returned again, with a heavy jug in her hands, thrusting it upon him. He was shocked she could carry such a weight. Moonshine. Keep it sealed. She should drink this only at night, every night. The witch turned away, waving a bloody hand behind her. 
So the man returned home, the blood on his chin freezing and melting in a perpetual tide, with his injured panting as he made his way through the winter chill. The man gave his wife her moonshine. He followed the witch's instructions, and over the coming days, was surprised to see his wife come alive before him. Her appetite returned, and she would marvel at the taste of food that once held little interest. Her nights were calm and euphoric, and she kissed her husband often. With his sliced tongue, the kisses hurt. They did not feel as they once did, if he could even feel them at all. But the man said nothing, and was pleased to see his wife well again. Then, the moonshine ran out. The man took the same path out into the woods, jug in hand, and was greeted in the darkness just as before. This time, the man's words were thick and clumsy around his mangled tongue. Please, I need more of your moonshine. My wife was well, but now it is out, and she will not speak, she will not smile. I will give you the potion for your wife's misery, but you must give me one of your ears said the witch, stepping slowly toward him through the icy underbrush. The man agreed, certain that, like the last, this price was not too great for his wife's happiness. In a fast motion, the woman grabbed the man's ear, bending him nearly double to get the thing at eye level. There was one swift cut, hot like a knife. She seemed to reach within his head. He saw the flash of that crooked smile— and then she was walking back toward the caves, chewing the ear like dried beef. So the man returned home, blood seeping through his hair, into his shirt, frosting with the winter chill. His wife had her moonshine, and was even brighter still. She was an endless stream of delighted chatter, at all hours extolling the virtues of one thing or the next, devouring meals and conversation with hearty laughter. In her constant happy raving, the woman kept her husband from any opportunity to speak, but he was grateful. Now it pained him each time he opened his mouth to say anything at all. With his missing ear, the man's head ached. The sounds of his wife's voice seemed different somehow, and he could not follow her conversation. But the man said nothing, and was pleased to see his wife well again. Then the moonshine ran out. The man took the path, and this time saw the hag before she spoke, having had some experience with her now. His words were thick and clumsy, loud to compensate for his hearing. Please, I need more of your moonshine. My wife was well, but now it is out, and she will not smile. The woman's laugh sounded like a bark in the darkness, but her voice was even when she said, I will give you the potion for your wife's misery. But you must give me one of your eyelids. This gave the husband pause. No eyelid. How would he close his eyes, blink, sleep? What would become of him? After only a moment, the man agreed, telling himself that this price could not be too great for his wife's happiness. The witch came to him. She smiled her satisfied smile and held her hand out, waiting patiently for the man to place his chin in her palm. Then, slowly, she traced a long nail over his shut eye and peeled the lid away as the man screamed. He could not look away when she immediately began nibbling his soft flesh. So, the man returned home. 
His eye hardened and cold, no skin to protect it from the winter chill. Again, his wife had her moonshine and was brighter even than before. Days passed, and the man delighted to see his wife smiling again. At every passing person and little moment she would beam, so long as she had her moonshine. But with his eye exposed, the man could not look away when she began to drink the moonshine during the day, despite the witch's directions and his protestations. Now he saw every time she flinched at the sight of his tongue, his ear, that exposed eye. She kept away from him, so he did not need to speak, and he did not need to listen, and for that he was grateful. With no lid, he found himself always weeping, tears streaming down one half of his face, even when he met her smiles with his own. So he turned his face from her and began only showing his wife the side where his tongue, his ear, and his eye looked perfectly fine. He ached always, but was pleased to see his wife well again. Then the moonshine ran out. The man crashed into the woods, all stumbling loud words and blurry vision. Please, he begged, throwing himself into the cold, wet earth and looking out into the darkness where he knew the witch would appear. Please, I need more of your moonshine. My wife was well, but now it is out and she is worse than ever before. He began to weep. My wife is beside herself. She is hot and delirious. Her bones burn within her body, and she tells me that the world is dark and that the light burns her eyes. She will not leave the house. She hides away from me, and when she appears, she screams and turns our home to shambles with her raving. His unblinking eye rolled up at the witch, now standing over him. Take my eye, he held up his hands like a prayer. Have my hand. The witch said nothing, and the man threw himself at her feet, his heartbeat pounding in his head. Take my heart. Take my heart. I am whole, and my heart is strong. You will be much nourished by it. Please, my heart for your moonshine. All right. I will give you the potion for your wife's misery, and you will give me your heart. The witch came forward and wrapped one arm around the man's back like an embrace. Then, slowly, so slowly, she took her claws to his flesh and dug. It took longer than any payment yet before. But he did not scream, the action being only additional pain by now. He could not hear his own cries in any case. He could not look away as she hollowed him out, burrowing into the man until she reached around his heart and wrenched it forth into the night. There was the briefest moment that it beat, still tied to the man. He saw his life in her hand and felt a strange wash of sadness. Then she smiled her crooked and satisfied smile, twisting her wrist, and the last cord of his life was plucked. The witch squeezed his heart in her hand and gave it a long sniff before turning away. So the man returned home. The recess in his chest felt febrile, even in the winter chill. There was no pounding heart to drive his blood, 
so it ran out of him like a long and weary sigh. His footprints were black splatters in the night. Blood ran down his arm so that it streamed in a perfect river within the valley carved by the dragging jug of moonshine. The man collapsed in the yard of the small cabin in the small town. The frozen fingers of his hand nearly shattered as the jug of moonshine swung across the snow-covered ground in a smear of gore. His wife stepped out from the darkness of their home, out into the winter night. With a crooked and satisfied smile, she reached over her husband and picked up the moonshine. I like to imagine that Nancy would be very proud to know that she was the inspiration for this story. And I also really like that this had the old fable feeling of the repetitive nature, the, the asking the question the same way and the way it, it changed and grew. It definitely, it had the feel of that kind of tale, but then at the end there wasn't the morality as much as the twist of the wife either not caring, not being aware, being in on it. I think it's pretty ambiguous where she ended up there. I wrote this definitely to be an allegory for addiction and mm -hmm. how a person's partner or someone in their life can just give and give and give, but you only have so much to give. And if you continue to allow someone to take from you without replenishing you, mm -hmm. it is an equally dark situation. I love this structure for a story, that classic fable, especially mm -hmm. because Moonshine has a legacy that goes so far back, but also that classic structure supported the cyclical nature of addiction. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And being caught in a bad relationship. Uh, and and the witch just got to facilitate my little allegory by being spooky. This is a spooky witch, for sure. Little snackies. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, Trace. <laughs> no, but it was a great story. Really, really well done. So just a last little detail about Moonshine. Uh, if you'd like to try it, the first legal distillery opened in the U.S. in 2005 in Madison, North Carolina. And there are dozens of brands and flavors all over liquor stores all over everywhere here oh yeah i have a friend who really likes moonshine and he would bring it to like everything yeah it's a it's a whole drink now oh yeah absolutely all right hey trace tell me something mm -hmm. good okay my something good is um i finally watched the show solar opposites uh it's on hulu and Ooh. it is um i have to look it up i, I think it's it's definitely one of the creators of Rick and Morty, and I'm sure people who love the show are, like, screaming. It's Justin Roiland, and I don't know if it's Dan Harmon. I don't think Dan Harmon's in it. But if you like Rick and Morty but want a show that is animated in the same way but is much more um, – I was going to say it's much more wholesome. It's not much more wholesome, <laughs> but <laughs> it, all the characters genuinely like each other, and each episode kind of ends with, like – stories being reconciled and it's about this kind of family so it's about a family of aliens who crash land on earth it's just it's silly and it's goofy and um i have this thing where i pick a show that i watch while i walk on the treadmill i have like a little mini treadmill in my living room Ooh. and it gets me to be motivated to kind of just get some walking in and that was my walking show was solar opposites and it's just very fun very entertaining uh, brought me a lot of joy. There's three seasons so far. Season one and season three are delightful. Season two is good, but not my favorite. And I just wrapped up season three. So Solar Opposites has brought me joy lately. So just to confirm, it's like an adult cartoon? Yes. Yep. I have really missed the boat on adult cartoons. I 
I never see them. Like, I never... Sometimes I get really bad secondhand embarrassment really? from them. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. I, I think that's totally valid. Um, I like Rick and Morty, and I really liked Rick and Morty early on, but I think the the humor of it's a little bit gross. The characters don't love each other as much, and there's also a whole conversation to be had around the fandom and the, the type of people who really promote loving Rick and Morty. There's like a a broader conversation to be had there, but um, Solar Opposites was recommended to me and has been very delightful. And, you know, it's still got some gross parts. It's still got some <laughs> not great humor, but it's actually, uh, again, all the characters love each other. And as the show goes on, I'll, I guess, potential spoiler, although not really, it, it turns kind of, I guess, halfway through season two or in season two, they realize like, oh, we think we're making a kind of queer show. Um, we think the two lead aliens are actually in love with each other. And they just figured it out. Yeah, they just figured it out. Um, because it's Thomas Middleditch is the voice of the other main character. So he played, uh, Richard on Silicon Valley. And so basically there was an interview and they're just like, yeah, we just kind of leaned into it. So by season three, there's unironically saying like, this is my husband. This is my, like, that's my life partner, Terry, or my life. Like, it's just, that, that was a fun thing to see happen with the show. So Good. Give it it a try. Check out Solar Opposites. But now it's your turn, Rowan, to tell me something good. So, oh my god, I can't even believe this is a thing. So my friend Spencer Stark, who's been on the podcast, everyone will know and love him from our Orpheus episodes. Nicest person ever. He gave me my holiday present early. He got me real antique tin types. (gasps) Oh my god, Spencer! Oh my god, Spencer. That's unbelievable. Just the... So you're going you're gonna to share pictures of them with everyone, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And some of them are little, like little pocket-sized ones. And yeah. the biggest one is probably about the size of my palm. Oh, my and God. And there's a baby, and its cheeks are rouged in one of them. And there's pictures of these two dudes who are, like, really given, like, <laughs> they were roommates energy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there's some family ones. It's wild. I, I, I don't even know how to express my giddiness and he got it for me because he remembered that in uh my apartment my first apartment out of college I had this little line going around the ceiling that had tiny little paper clips like and uh vintage photographs yeah um oh you saw it um because yeah. I had it for I so long I also just long. know you've been collecting vintage photographs forever well all of those photographs got lost in a mini disaster at that apartment and I was so sad because they were specifically, like, weird photographs. Mm, mm-hmm. Like, weird Halloween pictures from families. Or, like, one was a picture of, like, a woman holding up a quilt that she'd clearly made. And it was, like, boobs. <laughs> I it's, like, remember boob that quilt. one. Yes. <laughs> it was so good. Um, and they they got ruined. Um, and I had told Spencer that story over a year ago. Oh, my God. And he was like, I just remembered he liked them. <laughs> and... Got me the literal best present in the world. So I'm geeking out there on my desk right now. Oh, that's There's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, my God. Spencer, a king. Continues to be a king. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Just, wow. People, yeah. man. People, man. Well, speaking of people, thank you all so much for listening. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay?
Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. The bitchiness of the face I just made. Okay. <laughs> it's the same girl who said that the weirdos across the street play D&D. So. Oh, get fucked. Mm-hmm.